Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to Pod's Own Country, the politics podcast from the Yorkshire Post. My name is Caitlin Doherty, your Westminster correspondent. In the week everybody burned out in the heat, it brought some big news for government and politics in Yorkshire. It was announced on Wednesday evening that North Yorkshire will get its own single unitary authority in the biggest local government shake-up for nearly 50 years. While York will remain its own unitary council, Robert Jenrick revealed that the single council option was picked over an east-west split that was also being considered, which the government didn't think met requirements when it comes to geography and the provision of local government services. The first elections for this shiny new council will be held in May next year. And of course, the Yorkshire Post will keep you up to date with all of the developments. This week for the podcast, I spoke to Leeds Central MP and former Environment Secretary Hilary Benn about the new report from the Environmental Justice Commission, which he co-chairs. The commission from the IPPR think tank looks at the government's plans to reach net zero and says that the public could effectively veto any suggestions if the costs and benefits aren't fairly shared across the population. The report has more than 100 recommendations on what the government can do, including launching a £7.5 billion a year Green Go scheme, a financial one-stop shop akin to the government's Help to Buy scheme, which could help households switch to green alternatives on heating, home insulation and transport, enabling warmer and more affordable greener homes and cleaner travel. Let's hear what Hilary had to say about the report. I am speaking this week to Leeds MP Hilary Benn, who helped put this uh, Environmental Justice Commission report together. How are you today? I'm fine, Caitlin. And you? I'm good. Very good. Thank you. Um, Now, this report came out last week and um, I have had a chance to read it. And it's very, very, there's some really interesting points made. Um, But could you tell us what this report is and why, why it's been produced? Well, we all know, or almost everybody knows, that we've got a big problem with our changing climate, and we know we've got to get our CO2 emissions down. Um, So the task now is what are the practical steps we need to take as a country, and indeed as a world, to do this? But what's distinctive about this report is 
our analysis, because what we say is if we don't take the public with us, we're going to have a problem. And if we don't make these changes in a way that is fair, indeed, in a way that reduces inequality rather than makes it worse in our society, then we're going to have a problem too. And it's it's through that understanding that we have tried to address the changes we're going to have to make in the way in which we make things, the way in which we travel around, what we eat, how we heat our homes and our buildings. And the other thing that is, I think, really interesting about this is we held four citizens' juries in drawing up the report. So we went round the country to different communities and we have been greatly influenced by what the people who were, obviously, they, they wanted to serve on the jury, but they weren't climate experts. They were people who were interested in coming forward. And they had a, a lot of really interesting and informative things to say that have shaped the report that we published. What in your mind, you know, you mentioned a lot of things there talking about how we how yeah. we heat our homes, how we travel talking to um, the average man on the street, somebody who yeah. might have been involved in your citizens' juries, what sort of changes do do they need to make to sort of help improve things? Well, uh, starting with how we get about, um, car companies won't be able to sell petrol and diesel cars um, uh, within a few years. So to continue to be mobile, and not everyone needs a car, but some people absolutely need a car, uh, we're going to have to move to electric vehicles. And we can see the change taking place. So government regulates by saying beyond a certain date, you can't sell the type of car you're making at the moment. So the car manufacturers respond and say, okay, we need to produce something different. And every month, another electric car comes out onto the market. It may be that electric vehicles are an interim technology because they require precious metals, and maybe we will be moving to hydrogen fuel cell cars in the future. But that's for technology to work out. Um, and when it comes to our homes, the, 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 the task is really quite simple, but a bit daunting. Um, all the gas boilers are going to have to come out eventually. So if people are not heating their homes using gas boilers, what's the alternative? Uh, heat, heat pumps. But heat pumps may need larger radiators, internal insulation. A heat pump is a bit like a reverse fridge. Um, and the alternative would be hydrogen boilers, providing they can work out that it's possible to pipe hydrogen through the existing natural gas pipe network and do that safely. So, again, technology will determine what the choices are. If you're going to use hydrogen, we need to produce a lot more green hydrogen. That requires more renewable electricity. But from the point of view of an individual, they will ask these questions. What's the alternative to my gas boiler? How much is it going to cost? Uh, will I get help to meet that cost? Who's going to fit it? When's this going to happen? And that is a really practical question. Now, we have a very small example of how we did this before. In the late 60s and early 70s, we switched from coal gas to, uh, coal gas to natural gas. And I remember when the man came to our house and changed the burners on the gas cooker and the two gas fires that we had. Now, you know, he and his colleagues went down streets and just converted. This is a much bigger conversion because it's more than just changing a burner. But those are the practical things that we're talking about. And the government will have to provide support, particularly to constituents of mine and others who have trouble paying the gas bill every month and simply don't have the money to put in a new boiler or a heat pump. I think... 
I think that's a really interesting point that you make there because it would be really easy for people, the average person on the street, as we said before, your constituents to look at this and think, yeah, it would be great to help tackle the climate crisis, but quite simply, I I can't afford it. Is that is is helping people and supporting them through this a really key to tackling the problem? It absolutely you put your finger on it. And the reason why we we need to fund this, uh, it's a point the Office for Budget Responsibility made recently, which, as you know, keeps an eye on the nation's finances. They said the cost of not tackling climate change in the end is going to be much, much higher than the cost of doing something about it. So it's not like we have a choice. Well, we, we could invest, but perhaps we won't. It's too expensive. The consequences of failing to act are much more costly for us as individuals, for society. I mean, look at what we've seen in the last month around the world. Record temperatures in Canada, the wildfires in California, the torrential rain and floods in Germany, which has claimed a lot of life. Now, our climate is changing. There's no question about that. And the future will be one of hotter summers and more heavy rainfall. And that's why we've got to act. But we proposed something called the um, Green Go scheme, which would be a bit like help to buy, that would be a way of assisting people who need help to pay for the cost of making those changes, whether it's a different way of moving about or changing the way in which they heat their homes. Um, Because if you try and impose a change on people and they haven't got the means to do it, well, it isn't going to work. And and we make the point when President Macron increased uh, uh, fuel duty in France, uh, the Gilets Jaunes took to the streets. And we use the phrase in the report, in the end, the public have a veto on responding to this. And that's why you have to have a plan that takes people with you. Mm. I was I was about to bring up um, the point of the veto. That was the line that really stuck out to me yeah. um, from from your introduction. What what do you mean by that? How how can you see that idea working? Well, what it means is you have to win public consent. I mean, there. Uh, I remember having a discussion with uh, one of the, an Extinction Rebellion protester in Parliament Square a couple of years ago, and they were proposing. They said Parliament can't be trusted to make the changes necessary because politicians are all short-term. Climate change is the ultimate long-term problem. Uh, We will set up a citizens' assembly and what the citizens' assembly recommends, parliament must implement. And I then said to him, yeah, but what if the public don't like or don't agree with what your citizens' assembly has suggested? And he was a bit stumped because I'm not sure that he thought about it. And what we've done in this report is to take that understanding. And, you know, Extinction Rebellion has played an important role in raising awareness. Uh, I don't agree with all of their methods of doing it, but there's no doubt that we are facing a crisis as a world. And therefore, how are we going to do it in practice? I, I liken this to the reverse of the church spire appeal. You've seen the thermometers and people raise the money and they paint another bit of red in. And eventually the thermometer gets to the top and we can replace the roof. Well, tackling climate change is that in reverse. We're up at the top of the red at the moment, and that's our CO2 emissions. And the aim is to get them down bit by bit so we 
end up with no red because we've got to a zero carbon future. And we can measure the progress that we make, but it is the practical steps, retraining people in industries that are based on fossil fuels at the moment. We're not going to be able to take fossil fuels out of the ground, but we will be building alternative technologies, uh, hydrogen uh, plants that will turn water into hydrogen to generate heat and electricity. Uh, there'll be a huge market for heat pumps and new boilers, a huge market for electric vehicles and other technologies. So there are opportunities here. It's not a question of, you know, on with the sackcloth and ashes and, and back to the past. We are a very capable and resourceful world. And when you think about it, Caitlin, every single thing that you and I see around us, literally everything, the computer I'm looking at, uh, the screen you're staring at, uh, the house out the window. Every single one of those things has come from the earth on which we stand. And human beings have shown this astonishing creativity to build the world that we have today. And we're going to need the same creativity to meet the zero carbon challenge. It's You talked about there about um, climate change being a long-term challenge. And people have been saying that for the last 10 years, even longer. It's going to be the biggest challenge of this generation, the next generation, yeah. and many to come. But there's been another big challenge in the last two years. The pandemic has made yeah. the world a very, very different place to the place it was in 2019. Everything has been thrown off kilter, you know, industry, politics, anything that you can think of. How does the UK recover from the pandemic and at the same time tackle the climate emergency? Are they two problems that can be dealt with together or do we have to do one before we can move on to the other? I think we we have to do both together and actually doing both together provides a way out of the economic difficulties that we're facing. Because if we get on with it and generate demand for the heat pumps and the boilers, they're going to have to be made. We should be making them here in Britain. That creates jobs and that provides uh, incomes and uh, that will make a, dig, a big difference to people's lives. The other point I'd make is this. The way in which governments around the world have responded to the pandemic has required them to do things that if you and I had had this conversation two years ago and I'd said to you, you know what, within a couple of years, the Chancellor of the Exchequer in Britain will be paying the wages of nine million people. You might have said to me, well, I don't think that's going to happen. But circumstances demanded it. And the furlough scheme was created to enable people to continue to have an income. And what that has taught, I think, all of us is government can do things, big things, if it puts its mind to it. And we're not going to achieve uh, uh, overcoming climate change by um, thinking or acting small. We need all of us to think and act big. We need leadership. And being able to respond to the pandemic shows why you need government to take the lead. And after all, we uh, you go back to the Second World War, there were profound changes in the way in which people lived their lives and what government did, because there was a, a crisis that we were facing, which was our, our survival in the fight against the Nazis. Now, we are facing a different crisis, but it's also about the survival of uh, humankind. And we will need that leadership, government providing policies, regulation, finance, but it also requires 
us to play our part. And that's another thing about the report. We talk about giving local communities the tools to get on with the job because the precise solutions may vary from place to place because places are different, circumstances are different. And if you live in a rural area where public transport is not uh, very good or very rare, people are absolutely dependent on a vehicle to get out, to live their lives, to get their kids to school, to go to work. And, and that's why one answer isn't going to work everywhere. And the people who know best what's required locally are the people who live and work locally and the local elected leaders uh, in whom they put their trust and their faith. It, it was really interesting to see the emphasis that you put on local communities in, in this report. And one of your citizens' workshops, was it, was held in Doncaster. Um, why, why were you keen to come to Yorkshire? And what did people want to know? What were people talking about when, when you came to speak to people in Doncaster? Well, in all of the citizens' juries that we have done, and other conversations, um, the way we approached it was to present the challenge and then to see what people had to say. And there's a, a video that we've produced. If people go on to the um, Environmental Justice Commission website, you can hear the jurors themselves talking about how their understanding has changed in some cases people who hadn't thought a great deal about the climate change challenge. But I think if you trust people with the, the issue, the problem, the task that we've got, and say, okay, so what do you think we need to do? What are the considerations that we need to take into account? You will get a lot of really helpful and sensible recommendations. And, you know, people realise that some of this is really quite difficult and there are choices and there are trade-offs to be made. And in, in a way, a citizen's jury brings the public, you know, in, including in Yorkshire and other parts of the country, into the world of elected representatives who are grappling with these choices and trade-offs uh, every single day of the year. And it's a way of bringing people along with us and informing the recommendations that we have made. And I, I would just urge people, if they've got time, I mean, have a look at the video first. It's not very long. Read the summary of the report and see what you make of it yourself in the way that you've clearly done, judging by the questions you've been asking. Um, this is obviously quite quite a mixed region. And you made the point a few minutes ago about yeah. communities being different, yeah. um, leaders at the heart of the community knowing knowing what's best. If you were to say, take your constituency in Leeds, what would people be doing there or what can people do there to help these issues that they might be doing differently from people in North Yorkshire or other rural communities, maybe in the Dales? Well, let's take, let's take the, uh, Leeds itself. We need a, a more effective public transport system. Uh, we need a rapid transit system in the city. I mean, there's the history of the super tram and the, and the trolley bus. The fact is, we call for free local public transport in this report. Now, some people may raise an eyebrow and say, well, that's a bit a bit radical. But there are other cities around the world where there is free local public transport as we speak today. Uh, because leaving on one side CO2 emissions, we have a big problem with congestion in the city. And car ownership is forecast to continue to rise and eventually cities end up in gridlock. So to 
help people come out of their cars for some of the journeys they make. You need an effective public transport system. We need HS2. We need Northern Powerhouse Rail so that people are given alternative choices about how they're going to move about. If you're talking about a rural area, um, even with an improvement in public transport, you're not going to have in rural areas the kind of public transport that allows people to do all of the things they've got to do, get to work, as I said, take the children to school, go to the doctor, go shopping and so on. And therefore, you'll need an infrastructure to enable people to charge their electric vehicles, because that's one of the factors that puts people off at the moment um, uh, buying an electric vehicle, assuming they can afford one, and cost is a big, big issue, is, well, where am I going to charge it? And we've got to apply our minds to that so that there are charging points. And that plus increased range will give people the confidence to make the switch. And then in due course, there'll be a secondhand market in electric vehicles, which will be very important in making uh, them affordable for people who continue to need mobility. So those are, I'd say those are two, uh, those are two examples where you've got different needs in different parts of Yorkshire. Um, I I won't keep you for very much longer. Thank you for speaking to us today. But uh, less than six months until COP26. Yes. If you had the Prime Minister or um, COP26 President Alok Sharma in front of you right now, as a result of this report, what would be the one thing that you would ask them to change or the one thing that you could ask them to do? I would ask them to get on track to meet our own carbon budgets. I mean, I was the Environment Secretary when the Climate Change Bill was introduced to Parliament, and that was a world first. And it creates a legal obligation on the government to um, get emissions down. And the Climate Change Committee, which is, if you like, the OBR of climate change, the referee, it is saying the government's off track. And the reason why we've got to get back on track, and there's lots of idea in in this report as to how that can be done, is this. When Boris Johnson and Alak Sharma are at the COP, the credibility with which you can ask other countries to make commitments really depends on the credibility of the action that you're taking at home. Because we know it's easy to say, you know, make us a promise, but are we going to deliver? And therefore, your ability to persuade other countries is strengthened if you're really getting on with it at home. And that would be the one point that I would make to them. Hilary Ben, thank you very much for your time today. I'm sure people will have a lot of thoughts after this chat. Thank you. I I really enjoyed that. Thanks so much for listening to Podzone Country this week. I've been Rob Parsons, the Yorkshire Post political editor. And if you've liked what you've heard, please do leave us a review on any of the services in which you get your podcast, so Apple or Spotify or iTunes. And We will see you next week. And if you've got a story that you'd like us to discuss, please email caitlin.doherty at jpimedia.co.uk and our podcast will be back next week. Bye-bye.